How many of you, if I, uh, if I told you to turn to the Beatitudes, would have an idea of where to turn? And if I said the Beatitudes were in the Sermon on the Mount? Yes, 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 yes. How many of you, excuse me, my notes got a little confused uh, between services. <clears throat> How many of you have ever sung uh, This Little Light of Mine, or have heard Christians referred to as being salt and light? How many of you have uh, ever heard of someone talking about turning the other cheek, going the extra mile, giving somebody the shirt off of your back? Not, not many of you have heard of that? Just John? How many of you have ever prayed in this way, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name? Only about a third of you, so nobody here knows the Lord's Prayer. My goodness. <clears throat> or heard this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Or do not be anxious about tomorrow, tomorrow will be anxious for itself. How many of you have not heard this, judge not lest you be judged? Not a soul, not a one. <laughs> or how about this? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Or this. How many of you have not heard this? Do not, or sorry, wow. Do unto others what you would have. <laughs> do unto others what you would have them do unto you. These are all direct quotes from one sermon preached by one man 2,000 years ago, the Sermon on the Mount preached by Jesus himself. I would say, I would argue, the best sermon ever preached. And I defy you to argue with me. <laughs> We're going to spend our time together this morning studying just a very, very small part of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's a weird thing. I don't know how many of you think about it. Uh, the letters that we preach through, the epistles that we preach through, are letters that were meant to be read in one sitting. I know we're used to, as a congregation, going through and getting a couple sentences in, or maybe a couple words, or uh, maybe a paragraph at the most. So it's, it doesn't seem that strange to us. But this is a sermon that was preached. And so the people who were there listening to this sermon, they would have heard the whole thing in a morning or in an afternoon or in the evening. And we're going to focus in on, on one sentence from the sermon. But this is the Word of God. Every word is inspired. Every word is authoritative. And every word bears digging into deeply. But since we are going to be studying this passage so closely this morning, since we are going to focus on one sentence, it's important for us to begin with the big picture. It's important for us to begin with the context. So, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. That's where the Sermon on the Mount is. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew chapter 5. But first, I want to paint a picture of what led up to the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, a man named John the Baptist began preaching that people should repent. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven 
is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In verse 3 of chapter 3, we learn that John began to preach because he was supposed to prepare God's people to receive the king, to receive Jesus. So there's a, there's a kingdom that is at hand and there is a king who is here among us. He is coming. He'll be unveiled to you shortly. The people of God have been trained to look for a coming king. All throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, God had opened up to them and taught them, instructed them to look for a king to come. A king that would deliver them from their oppressors. And John was announcing that this king was here and his kingdom was at hand. The devil had been reigning in this world ever since our first father Adam handed over his God-given authority to him when he appeared to Adam as a serpent in the garden. Satan came to Adam in the garden in the form of a serpent, in the form of a snake, and deceived Eve and tempted Adam to disobey God and hand over his authority. And that's what Adam did. So the theme of the snake king and his oppressive rule And the promise of a deliverer who would come and crush the serpent's head is central to Scripture. And we see it all throughout the Scriptures. We see it very clearly in the story of the Exodus. When God's people were led out of Egypt by a shepherd named Moses. There in Egypt, the people slaved away under the oppression of the pharaohs. The great snake kings of Egypt. And it's not a coincidence that the symbol for Pharaoh was a snake. On his head, he wore a snake in his crown. His headdress was made to look like a cobra. And you've all seen it. It's something God wrote into history to teach us something about our redemption. There they labored under the oppression of the pharaohs until God raised up for them a a deliverer. Similarly, King David delivered the people of Israel from the Philistines when he struck down their champion, a giant clothed in snake armor. Again, not a coincidence. King David crushed the serpent's head. So in verse 13 of chapter 3, we see that Jesus came to John to be baptized by him, and that when he was baptized, God the Father declared him publicly to be his beloved son, And God the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus, anointing Him for the work He was to perform. Just like the kings of old were anointed for the work they were to do as king. So we can begin to sense the anticipation. John's been preaching. There's a king and his kingdom is at hand. And now he's been unveiled and declared publicly to be the king. It's no surprise for us then that in chapter 4, verse 1, we learn that immediately after Jesus was identified as the Son of God, the Spirit of God led him out into the wilderness to do battle with the serpent, with the devil, to be tempted by him in all the same ways that Adam, our first father, was tempted. And Jesus conquered the devil with his temptations, and then he began to teach and to preach. He called his first disciples in chapter 4, verse 18, And then in verses 23 to 25, we read about him proclaiming the good news of a kingdom. And we see him healing diseases. We see him healing afflictions. We see him casting out demons. We see him destroying the effects of sin in the world. So let me summarize. 
John comes, John begins declaring, there is a kingdom at hand, so you need to repent. The kingdom is at hand, you need to repent. The king is coming. So Jesus came, and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit anointed and declared him king. And Satan, the serpent, came and challenged Jesus' authority and lost. And then Jesus began declaring the kingdom of God and healing diseases and sicknesses. And crowds were coming to him from everywhere, from all over to see Him, to hear Him, and to be healed by Him. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, we read this. The crowds have come to Jesus, and Jesus, seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain, just like Moses, when He had delivered the people, went up on the mountain and received God's law and declared God's law to the people. Seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him, and He opened His mouth and taught them. Now, what do you think they expected to hear from Jesus? What do you think they expected? They've all gone out to see this man, this king, and to be healed by him. And he stands on the mountain and he addresses them. What do you think they expected him to say or to talk about? They expected him to talk about the kingdom he was bringing, to declare that he had arrived and it was time. And that is what he did. But he didn't do it the way that they expected him to. I think what he did was the exact opposite of what they expected. Who were these people that came out to see Jesus? Who was he going to preach to? Who is he going to declare the kingdom to? Well, they were a people that were poor and afflicted and oppressed. They had heard about Jesus. They had heard about his power to heal. They were the kind of people that needed to be healed. They were miserable people with very real problems, and they wanted relief. They wanted to be happy. They wanted to be made well. Jesus had compassion on them. He had compassion on their needs. He healed them. But Jesus was able to look at them and see beyond their physical needs. He was able to look at them and see their hearts, their spiritual needs. And he saw a people who thought he was bringing in a worldly kingdom. He saw people who thought he was there to solve all their problems. He saw past their poverty. He saw past their sorrows and hurts. He saw past their lowly condition. He saw past the fact that they were hungry and thirsty. He saw past the fact that they were oppressed, that they were unclean and impure, that they were in the midst of conflict, that they had been abused. He saw past all of it. And Jesus did something we see him doing throughout all the Gospels. He took their physical needs and he connected them to their spiritual needs. He said, many of you are poor. Many of you are impoverished. And you want relief and you think that relief will come to you if you can just get out of the hole that you're in. When you're no longer poor, then you'll be happy. But I say to you, blessed, happy are those who are poor in spirit. You're sorrowful, you're hurting, and you think that if you could just get some relief, if you could just be free from the things that have you sad, you'll be happy. But I say to you that blessed and happy are those who mourn. You're hungry and you're thirsty and you think you'll be happy if you get your belly filled, but happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're a leper, you think your problem is that you're impure, ceremonially unclean, 
You just think if I can get, if you can get rid of your leprosy, if you can be physically pure, things will be well with you. But I say to you, blessed, happy is the man who is pure in heart. Jesus looks at them, he looks right into their hearts, and he goes straight after them. This is Jesus. So he begins his sermon by teaching the crowds the nature of true happiness. Where do you really find happiness? We look for happiness in all the same places that these crowds looked for. We think if we just weren't so poor, if we just had a little bit more money, if we were doing just a little bit better, if we had just a little bit better job, if my wife was a little bit you know, nicer or sweeter or more submissive or more fill-in-the-blank, prettier. If I had better health, if I had better grades, if I just had enough distractions to numb me to the pains of this life, then I'll be happy. Now, what's the problem? What's the problem with us? Is the problem that we seek happiness? Is that the issue, that we seek happiness? That's not the issue. All men seek for happiness. It's just the way that God made us. It's what we're made to do. It's how we're wired. French mathematician, if you can listen to a French mathematician, I I have a hard time listening to mathematicians that aren't French. French mathematician, Christian philosopher, Blaise Pascal, okay, puts it this way. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. In other words, he's saying, even the person who hangs himself, even the person who commits suicide is pursuing his own happiness. It's counterintuitive to us, but what's he really doing? He thinks that he's going to get some relief if he dies from the things that ail him, that trouble him. Everything we do is in some degree, in some way, motivated by our desire for comfort or for happiness. It's part of human nature, it's normal, it's how we're wired. And there's nothing wrong with that, so what is the problem? C.S. Lewis puts it this way, he says, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. The central problem with our pursuit of happiness is that it's a weak, twisted, sinful, half-hearted, and foolish pursuit. We have a hunger inside our souls, a longing that can't be satisfied by anything in this world And like idiots, we turn to everything in this world to fill it up. And we just go from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, looking for the one thing that will finally make us happy, that will finally fill us up, that will finally do the trick. And it can be more and more and more of the same thing, or it can be 
you know, this didn't work, so now that. But we keep going. The things of this world can't fill the deepest longings of our souls. Our souls are spiritual. They're not material. Seeking to satisfy our souls with material things, with alcohol, with money, with success, with money, with success, with money, with sex, with money, with sex, with video games, with sex and money, is idiotic. It's like trying to make square pegs fit into round holes. You can't fill spiritual voids with material things. Those things cannot satisfy our souls. They can't do it. They were never meant to. Those things pass away. They don't last. They're momentary and fleeting. We weren't meant to be satisfied that way. We were meant to be satisfied in God alone. So here are these crowds. They're coming to Jesus. They've been walking from, for miles. They've come from miles around, largely because they had heard of his power to heal. They were poor. They were miserable. They were weak. They were hungry. They were thirsty. They were bitter. They were unclean. They were oppressed. And they came for relief. They came for relief. They'd heard about a new king, a king capable of performing signs and wonders, a king capable of making all their dreams come true. They were desperate enough to believe it. They were desperate enough to grab their things and to travel miles out into the desert to find out for themselves. It's a desperate person that hears a rumor that a man can make the blind see and the deaf hear and believes and drops everything to go find him. Now, it wasn't wrong for these people to seek healing from Jesus. Don't hear me say that. It was not wrong. Jesus never rebukes anyone for that. Jesus has compassion on them. He heals them. You'll look in vain for a place in the New Testament where somebody comes to Jesus to be healed and is turned away. It never, ever, ever happens. Jesus never turns anyone away. And it's one of the greatest comforts to me of the New Testament. Jesus never turns away anyone that comes to him to be healed. But Jesus is able to see through the physical needs of these people. He's able to see their spiritual needs. He's not fooled by them, and he's not fooled by you. He's not fooled by me. He knows what they're after, and he knows what we're after. And he knows that all, if all he does is heal bodies, he's not given anyone what they really need. We need to be shown the way to true happiness. These crowds have assembled to seek a blessing from him, and he takes it as an opportunity to teach them what true blessedness, true happiness is. And this is what he says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and following. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, or meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. 
For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This passage is what is commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are not so much a how-to guide to happiness as they are a description of the man who's happy, of the man who's blessed or blessed. It's a description of the Christian. It's a description of Christian character. And the Beatitudes are very interconnected. Each one leads to the next. Being poor in spirit leads to mourning, which leads to being meek and humble, which leads to being hungry and thirsty for righteousness, which means leads to being merciful. But in the time that we have left this morning, we're just going to look at one verse. We're going to look at the foundation, the beginning of, of happiness, of Christian character, of Christian happiness. And it's this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now let's be clear. To be poor in spirit is not the same thing as to be poor. There are many, many men who have no money, but that does not make them poor in spirit. Jesus is not saying that financial poverty is a blessing. Although I do believe that the Bible does teach that those who are poor are in a better natural condition to see their own spiritual bankruptcy. Now, the kind of man we think of as together and happy is a man that is brimming with self-confidence and self-esteem. He is the man who has it all together. He's a man who believes himself, who believes in himself. If you want to be happy and successful in this world, that's the very first rule. You have to believe in yourself. You have to have high self-esteem. If you look at yourself and see nothing but poverty, you'll never be a winner. That's a lie from the devil. Self-esteem is the foundation for worldly happiness. There's a, a pastor in, uh, where is he, in California, who actually wrote a book on the Beatitudes called the Be Happy Attitudes, right? And he's the same man who said that the, the central problem in, in the world today is we, we need a reformation to rediscover the doctrine of self-esteem. Is that right? Isn't that what he said? It's Robert Schuller. that's right, Crystal Cathedral. Joel, Joel Osteen's no different. You know, if you're not getting out of bed in the morning and licking your lollipop and clicking your heels together and looking in the mirror and saying, man, I'm a winner, then you've got a problem. And the problem isn't that uh, you don't have a little, the problem is that you don't have enough lollipops. You know, that's the problem. They don't have enough lollipops, you know, waiting by your bed in the morning. You don't think highly enough of yourself. That's the prevailing wisdom, but that is not what Jesus says. Jesus says that the man who is blessed is a man who is poor in spirit. How do you even, how do you even write a book on the Beatitudes and get past this very first one, poor in spirit, and, th- and somehow think that self-esteem is at the center of Says it's the man who's poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Poverty of spirit has to do with how you look at yourself. And it starts with looking at yourself in the light of God's holiness. When you do that, everything changes. Your high view of yourself is obliterated. And where you once saw things to take pride in, where you once thought you were awesome, 
a winner. You begin to see nothing but sin and emptiness and death and sickness and need. In other words, poverty of spirit is the condition you find yourself in when you have an honest assessment of yourself, when you're being honest, when you stop lying. It's when you look at yourself and you see that you really are nothing but a beggar before God utterly and completely dependent on Him for everything. So poverty of spirit is a complete absence of pride. It's a complete absence of self-assurance. It's a complete absence of self-reliance. It's a complete absence of self-esteem. It's David, the shepherd boy, when he was anointed king over all Israel, saying, Who am I and what is my house? It's Isaiah when he sees a vision of God in the temple. You remember He's in the temple and he sees a vision of God and there are the angels crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. The train of his robe fills the temple and the house is filled with smoke and the foundations of the temple are shaking. And Isaiah says, woe is me, I am undone for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's the tax collector who stood far away off and beat his breast saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. While the Pharisee, quite full of himself, thanked God that he wasn't like the tax collector. It's the Apostle Paul who, looking at everything he had, every gift of God, said this, I count it all rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And it is Jesus who, though he was in the image of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you realize, have you ever realized the dependence that Jesus had on God the Father and on the Holy Spirit? Do you remember how much he was in prayer? Do you remember him saying things like, I can do nothing of myself? Do you remember how Jesus interacted with men while he was on the earth? Do you remember him washing the feet of his disciples? Do you remember what he said about himself when he said, the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served? This is Jesus. This is the Son of God himself. This is God incarnate. Poverty of spirit is what you have when you come face to face with God and you see yourself for who you really are. When you come into God's presence and you see Him as He is, everything becomes perfectly clear. And your pride is demolished. Your sinfulness is exposed. And you begin to understand what the Scriptures mean when they say there is none righteous. No, not even one. Because you have seen the Holy One. And everything changes, everything goes out the window, everything you've ever boasted in is gone. Your intellect or your education, your athletic prowess if you ever had any to start with, your money, your good looks, your charm, your relationships, your abilities, your self-righteousness, all gone. Now, dealing with that reality 
seems to us like the opposite of what will make us happy. If I lose myself, what else will I have? That's the fear that, dry, that keeps us from being honest. It's the fear that keeps us from being honest about who we really are. If we lose ourselves, then what will we have? It sounds miserable, and it would be miserable, but for one thing, and that's this. When we lose ourselves, we get God. And to us belongs the kingdom of heaven. You have to realize that you cannot have God and His kingdom until you lose yourself. Or rather, God will not have you until you have first become poor in spirit. Until you're poor in spirit, there'll be no room in your heart for Christ. And He's already full. He only dwells with the meek and the lowly, the contrite of heart, those who tremble at His word. In order to be filled with God's grace, in order to be filled with the glory of God's grace, you must be emptied of yourself. Until you're poor in spirit, Christ will never, ever be precious to you. Until you see your need of Christ, you'll never see his worth. Soren Kierkegaard tells a a parable about a a man who's from the city who had never been out to the country. He had a friend who lived out in the country and would always talk about the glory of the stars. And he would say, well, I don't see any stars where I live. I don't know what you're talking about. And the man said, just take a drive out into the country someday and look at the glory of the stars. And so one day he did. He got in his carriage, because back in those days you didn't have cars, you had carriages. He got out in his carriage and he went out into the country and he didn't see anything. He looked up at the sky and he said, well, I don't know what, what the big deal is. And so he turns around and starts to go back into town. And a big wind comes along and blows out the lanterns on either side of his carriage. And as soon as the lanterns are blown out, the sky fills up with glory. He didn't even need lanterns to see his way home. Our pride, our sinfulness, our sin, it's like lanterns obscuring the glory of God. We'll never see the worth of Christ if we're full of ourselves. Until you're poor in spirit, you cannot be saved. The kingdom of heaven only belongs to those who are poor in spirit. Now, are you like that? Are you poor in spirit? Is your life characterized by a sense of your unworthiness to stand before God? Be very careful that you're not deceived. Poverty of spirit produces true humility, but true humility is rare and it's frequently counterfeited. This isn't the humility of of Uriah Heat. It's not the humility of of Puddle Glum. True humility, being poor in spirit, actually produces joy. So here are a couple tests for you to consider. To test whether or not your humility is real. Have you had enough of yourself yet? Have you had enough of your pride? If you're truly poor in spirit, you'll realize that hell belongs to those who cling to their pride. Have you been done with your, have you ever been tired enough of yourself? You just want to be done with your pride. Is it a weight that weighs on you? A burden that's too heavy for you to bear? 
Is Christ truly precious to you? Once you see yourself as poor, as naked, as dependent on God, as empty, and realize that you deserve nothing but hell, and then turn to Jesus and find yourself accepted and embraced, covered, forgiven, cleansed, when Jesus then becomes riches to you, those who are truly poor in spirit see Jesus as precious above everything else in this world. Are you a mourner? Do you mourn over your sin and the poverty of your soul? Do you cry out to God for more grace and for more faith? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you see your emptiness and find yourself crying out to God to be filled? Are you lowly in heart? Are you truly humble? Do you look at others and see their gifts and your weaknesses? Do you carry in your heart a sense of debt to God? Do you pray? Do you pray a lot? Beggars are always begging. It's what they do. A man who's poor in spirit is always and often on his knees before God. Are you humble enough to take Jesus on his own terms and not on yours? When he says, take up your cross, lose your life for my sake, do you flinch? Or do you say, yes, Lord, I am yours? When he hands you a sword and tells you to behead your your favorite pet sins, will you obey? When he commands you to sever relationships that are sinful, will you obey? And then are you full of thankfulness and gratitude and joy? Those who are poor in spirit are overflowing with thanks and praise to God for His free grace. Everything is a gift. Everything is a gift of God's grace. And glory is everywhere for the poor in spirit. Undeserved, a warm sun and green grass and air to breathe. Joy, wherever you turn. poor in spirit have nothing of themselves and yet find themselves constantly blessed by God. When you're poor in spirit, you'll begin to live a life of prayer and dependence on God. You'll lose your pride and you'll learn genuine humility, not false humility, not the cheap counterfeit. When you become poor in spirit, your heart will overflow with gratitude to God and joy. You will mourn over your sin. You will long to put your sin to death because you will hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you will rejoice because you've been forgiven and you've received mercy and you know that the kingdom of heaven is yours. You'll not be afraid to confess your sins to one another because who cares what you look like? Who cares what people think about you? All that matters is having a clean conscience before God. When you become poor in spirit, you'll become truly courageous. You'll boldly declare God's word as a dying man to dying people, and you won't fear what happens to you because the kingdom of heaven is yours and no one can take it away. It was purchased for you with Christ's blood. And you haven't earned it and you know you can't earn it, but you know the one who did. And you know the one who gives it freely. And you know the one who secured it for you with his own blood. So how do you become poor in spirit? There's only one way, and it's you have to see God. You have to see God for who He is. You have to get out of yourself and you have to look to God. You must have your eyes opened by the Holy Spirit. Well, how will you do that? 
How will you do that? How will you see God? Well, you're here, and you're among God's people, and you're hearing God's Word spoken to you. And you have God's Word to read and to study and to meditate on. You have His law, which is a reflection of His character. You can look at what He expects of you, and you can see how holy He is. You can contemplate standing in His presence before Him at the judgment seat, which you will do one day. You can look at the Lord Jesus in the Gospels and see how tender He is, how full of compassion and mercy He is to all who come to Him. The more you look at God, the more you look at Christ, who is high and holy and meek and lowly. The more desperate you'll feel, the more needy you will feel, and the more hopeful you will feel. Because you'll come to Him, you'll be driven to Him with empty hands to beg and to be filled and to be forgiven, to be taken in. You'll cast yourself on His mercy and you'll find that He's merciful and full of compassion to everyone who comes, ready to heal, ready to forgive, ready to restore. More ready to give you grace than you are to receive it. And He never refuses anyone who calls on Him or comes to Him. So will you come? Will you forsake yourself? Will you give it up? Will you give up the game of trying to be something? Will you look to Christ and come to Him? Because He will never cast you out. And you will begin to know true happiness, true blessedness. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for sending Christ to die for our sins. And we pray that you would open our eyes to see who you are. Father, would you help us? Would you grant us true poverty of spirit? Would you teach us what it means to know you and to walk in your ways? Would you make us a people who are truly blessed, truly happy? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.